Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. I think that it's probably fair to say that Bernie Finkelstein is one of the architects of the Canadian music industry. He's well known as the founder of True North Records and for managing people like Bruce Coburn, Murray McLaughlin, and Dan Hill, among many others. But what's a lesser-known story is how he started his career managing the Poppers with a $74 loan from his father. First off, the first thing I did with the Poppers, they asked me, you know, one evening, and I said, yes. I had no money. I had nothing. My parents were not wealthy by any means. My dad had now retired from the Air Force, but anybody that knows what a warrant officer second class makes in the Canadian Air Force will know what I mean. Uh, you got lots of benefits and no, and no money, really, at that point anyway, at his rank. But they had their equipment in Hawk at Long and McQuaid's. They had taken, you know, taken off in all their stuff to get some money. And uh, it was great that Long and McQuaid's gave them the money. So I went home and I and I asked my dad if he could lend me $100. He actually didn't have $100 to lend me, but he had $74. And he gave me the $74. And I went over to Long and McQuaid's and I made my first deal. I said, look, we got to get this equipment out because the band can't play and they got a gig coming. And uh, uh, I got $74 and I sort of took it out of my pocket to show them. I said, so, you know, can you give us the equipment? And they said, yeah. How I came to interview Bernie is a pretty funny story. A few weeks ago, I reached out on Facebook looking for anybody that had a connection to an app developer or a video game developer. And what I got instead was an email from Bernie Finkelstein saying, I don't do either of those things, but maybe you'd like to interview me. Well, of course I wanted to speak to Bernie. After having read his book, True North, I knew that there was a ton of great stories for him to share. Given all that he's experienced in his colorful life, though, I thought that it would be fun to start with, what did you want to be when you grew up? It's a really great, it's a really great question. I just got to turn my mind back because, um, you know, I grew up on an air base, air bases yeah. uh, across Canada. My father was a was, uh, career RCAF, Royal Canadian Air Force. And... Um, so we moved all over the place. I mean, you know, so like all young kids, uh, you know, I think when I was six or seven, I thought I could become a baseball player for some reason. <laughs> you know, I, I soon, I soon lost that ambition. Um, you know, uh, I used to love the corner drugstore in Downsview. I used to go there to read the uh, comic books. And they used to let you sit there and do it, actually, the pharmacist. And then I got a job delivering uh, delivering um, by bike some of the prescriptions in the neighborhood. So I thought, well, maybe I'll become a pharmacist. However, as I got from grade 9 to grade 10, I was such a bad student. Uh, and I, I, I then thought, well, I'm going to become a pool hustler because I became a pretty good pool player. And this is a long-winded answer, but then I, I went down to Yorkville one, one evening. A friend of mine said, have you ever been to Yorkville? Because I was living in Downsview. But when I lived in Downsview, there was actually countryside between the city of Toronto and Downsview when you, when you went to, down into Toronto. So it felt like quite a journey. I went down to Yorkville and it changed my life. Now I did not, I did not, when I got involved in Yorkville, think I would be in the music business. In fact, I didn't even know there was a music business. And in fact, I don't think I ever heard the three words Canadian music business until sometime in the 70s when I was well entrenched. Um, but I, I thought I might become a writer I kind of admired the beat poets, Jack Kerouac, and I had a sort of strange romantic idea about that and used to sit in the coffee houses before they all became rock clubs and uh, 
And I used to think, okay, well, this sounds, this looks good. Sit here, smoke a coffee, get high, smoke a joint, and, and I'll be a writer. But I never wrote anything, really. So I fell into music, which I had loved since I was young. But I, I had no ambition to really be involved in music. It wasn't like I went, oh, I want to be involved in music. I was working at a club called the Al Patio, which is quite famous uh, if you study the Yorkville scene. And uh, a band called the Poppers asked me to manage them, Steve. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I can tell you how that happened. But I was working there as we were running an espresso machine mm -hmm. and uh, being a part-time bouncer, although uh, should not be confused with the heavy-duty uh, bouncers that you might have gotten more used to. Because in those days, in the 60s, there was no alcohol on, on, at least in any of the clubs on Yorkville. So it was all kids. So being a bouncer was just really more making sure people stayed in lines and stuff to get in the clubs. And uh, I used to clean the club in the afternoon, uh, the Al Patio. Mm -hmm. and uh, the owner of the El Patio let the poppers rehearse, and they were having a hard time. And I used to hear them talking, and they'd be saying, oh, this isn't working or that's not working. And I would chirp in, just not because I thought I knew anything, just because I had an opinion, and we were, we were the only people there. There was the four members of the band and me cleaning up and getting the kitchen ready for the evening. And uh, I'd hear them saying things like, should we have six string guitars or 12 string guitars? And talk to each other, and I would yell across. It was a very small club. I'd yell across, take the 12 strings. <laughs> Get the 12 strings. And anyway, one day Skip Prokop, who people know from Lighthouse better than they know him from the Poppers, but uh, who passed away, unfortunately. Uh, said to me, would you like to manage us? We think you'd be a really good manager. And frankly, Steve, I had to, uh, I had to read about what a manager, I said yes immediately. Yeah. And I did have some idea what a manager did. I don't want to, but, but truthfully, I had never seen a contract. I'd really never met a manager. Well, not true, because I'd met Randy Markowitz, who we all knew as Randy Dandy who managed the Mandela because the part-time job I had was at Honest Ed's. And uh, Randy also worked at Honest Ed's. So I knew Randy managed the Mandela. They were then called the Rokes still. But during that short period of time, they changed the name to the Mandela. So, you know, one day I woke up and I was in the music business. So the, long, the short answer is, I had no idea what I wanted to do, really. Yeah. And I fell into the music business, and I consider myself one of the luckiest people in the world to some degree because I fell into probably the only thing I could do, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know that I could do anything else. So, uh, so it was lucky, you know, for me. That, 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 and it kind of accidental. I think that's a similar story for many of us, although yours is a much more colorful story. I, I'm curious, what year was it that you came down to Yorkville for the first time? Yeah, 64. Uh, because by the end of 64, I was more or less, I had left, you know, much to my parents' chagrin. I had quit school. I, I couldn't even finished grade 10, really. I was having so much trouble. Hmm. Um, I do have a cute story about that. Anyway, I did, I did, uh, yeah, I ended up uh, in Yorkville towards the end of 64, I would say. And uh, I was managing the poppers in 65. Okay, well, what, in my imagination, the Yorkville scene in the 60s, and especially the 
early and mid sixties that you're talking about is um, the streets are lined with dreamers, which is why, you know, again, this is my imagination. It may be reality. I have no idea. And that's what, what I, what I am hankering to ask you here is what kind of people were populating Yorkville then? Well, when I first went in 64, uh, and I might have even gone in towards the end of 63, but, but let's call it 64. There, the clubs were still old-fashioned coffee houses, mostly. And they were just starting to convert to rock clubs. Uh, you know, by old-fashioned, I mean, it was like beatniks, more beatnik, but mostly European-influenced. Almost all of them were owned by uh, Europeans who had come over here, Spanish, German uh, people, uh, immigrants, I guess. And uh, they brought that kind of culture. So the, the you know, you'd go in these places and there would be big espresso machines. Yeah, and, you know, the sandwiches were like baguettes and there was people playing chess in the corner and, uh, you know, these clubs and, and there was folk singers, but they weren't even um, uh, Bob Dylan style folk singers. They were more... Malka and Yoso, I don't know if that rings a bell, but they were, okay, they were, they were sort of like singing European style folk, folk. Oh, okay, I get it, yeah. Flamingo and things like that. But what slowly started to happen, and I actually don't know who started it exactly, but um, I think those clubs weren't doing so well. Somebody decided to run rock and roll and it just blossomed out of I won't say out of nowhere but it just it just grew to the point where within a few months there was 30 40 clubs maybe not 40 but 30 clubs or so all with bands and with some of the greatest talent that this country has ever produced really many of whom we know and I'll give you some names in a second. And many of them who were just great talent who didn't become so famous. So, you know, we're talking about David Clayton Thomas and the Shays. We're talking about Jack London and the Sparrow, who later becomes Steppenwolf. We're, we're talking about uh, Neil Young playing there. We're talking about Joni Mitchell playing there. We're talking about... Uh, Bonnie Dobson playing in Yorkville. We're talking about Luke and the Apostles. We're talking about the Ugly Ducklings. We're talking about so many. And I, I probably just, I, you know, I can't name them all. But those are some of the ones that people know. And some who went on to be famous around the world and are still famous. And... Um, uh, but there was more than just music in Yorkville. It was also a place where, um, where people went, you know, in the 60s was the beginning of the women's movement. I don't know if it was the beginning, but it was when it blossomed. And uh, so there was people like uh, David DePoe who had the diggers. And there was people like June Caldwell who's very famous, passed away now, who, who opened up a free clinic on Yorkville. Because unfortunately, the downside was by the mid-60s, you know, by 66, 67, uh, you know, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of people were abusing drugs. Um, perhaps I was amongst them, to be honest. But, uh, but I got lucky and here I am. Uh, some people didn't get so lucky. Um, and uh, there was poets, there was filmmakers, uh, there was authors, and uh, but you know, I think I think because we're in the music business, we think about music, but uh, mostly in Yorkville. But there was more. But I think also music did produce some of the biggest stars at the time. I mean, it's taken until just recently, in my opinion for Toronto to have so many international stars again. And 
I'm thinking modern, you know, I'm thinking of Weekend at Drake and, uh, you know, Sean, uh, Sean Mendes and uh, Justin Bieber. Yeah. Yeah. Justin Bieber, uh, all, all basically concentrated, you know, in the greater Toronto area. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that there isn't international Canadian stars in other places and Elisa Carr, I guess, and others. I don't know all the names, but, um, uh, and it was like that back there in, in, you know, in the heyday of Yorkville with uh, Neil, Joni, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, David Clayton Thomas. And if people don't remember, David Clayton Thomas, of course, uh, had that great career with Blood, Sweat and Tears. I never want to assume the audience knows uh, all of this. Perhaps your audience does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Dreamers is right yeah, in a way. I mean, we all... I, I can't speak for everybody truly, but uh, but uh, I was a dreamer. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I kind of dreamt that I could get through all this without having to do anything. I was really wrong because well, it all yeah. comes down to hard work in the end. But, uh, uh, yeah, we all thought we were going to change the world. And maybe we did, but it doesn't look like it's changed into anything too great. But yeah, for a while, I thought it was good. So when you started working with the poppers, how did you figure out how to be a manager? How did you figure out the contract part of it? Well, uh, yeah, I, uh, first off, the first thing I did with the poppers, they asked me, you know, one evening and I said, yes, I had no money. I had nothing. My parents were not wealthy by any means. My dad had now retired from the Air Force, but. Anybody that knows what a warrant officer second class makes in the Canadian Air Force will know what I mean. Uh, you got lots of benefits and no and no money really yeah. at, at that point anyway at his rank. But they had their equipment in Hawk at Long and McQuaid's. They had taken you know taken off in all their stuff to get some money, and uh, it was great that Long and McQuaid's gave them the money. So I went home and I and I asked my dad if he could lend me a hundred dollars. He actually didn't have a hundred dollars to lend me, but he had seventy-four dollars. And he gave me the seventy-four dollars. And I went over to Long and McQuaid's and I made my first deal. I said, look, we gotta get this equipment out because the band can't play and they got a gig coming. And uh uh, I got $74 and I sort of took it out of my pocket to show them. I said, so, you know, can you give us the equipment? And they said, yeah. So I made my first deal <laughs> and uh, God bless Long and McQuaid's, I think. And, um, and, uh, and then I found um, one of the people that hung around Yorkville was a lawyer and he great interest in music. His name was Buzz Cherkov. And I didn't really know him very well, but I knew him, I knew of him. And I went and introduced myself to him. And he said, oh, I know what a management contract looks like. I'll get you one. So he gave me one. And that's what that's sort of what I learned. I, I read the contract and it told me what I had to do, kind of. It didn't tell me how to do it. It didn't tell me in what order you had to do it. But it said how I would make the money, you know, and it it sort of addressed the uh, fundamentals of what the relationship is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just sort of plowed my way through it, you know, and um, uh, I did sign the poppers to a contract and, uh, and uh, we actually for the time had some pretty good success. You know, it's a kind of a, well-known story i don't know if you want it all repeated but we we got a great gig with the jefferson airplane in new york city and it was it was the first gig the airplane had ever had in new york after this you know during the summer of love period and it was this new sensational band coming from san francisco the american sound that was finally going to transplant all the UK records and uh, or at least compete with them and uh, I managed to I mean it's a really interesting story and it's in my book and I, it takes too long to give you all the minutiae of it yeah. 
But I got the gig for the Poppers and they were fabulous and they blew away the audience on opening night. And on opening night, everybody that was everybody in New York was there. Everybody, everybody. Paul Simon was there and uh, Brian Epstein was there and Albert Grossman was there most notably. And uh, I got a call from Albert Grossman the next day. Uh, I don't know how he tracked me down. Oh, probably through the through the Cafe Agogo club owner uh, and uh, Howard Solomon and uh, and uh, saying, "Look, I loved your band. Uh, do you know who I am?" And I knew he. Man- I said, "Well, you manage Bob Dylan, is what I know." And he said, "Okay." He said, would you come to my office? Are you going to be in New York for the next year? I said, yeah, I'm going to be in New York for the whole engagement, which was four days. Anyway, I ended up being partners with Albert. It didn't last too long, but I learned very quickly, Steve, learned very quickly. Uh, I learned a lot from Albert about about strange things, but I learned a lot. And... uh, and, you know, again, getting lucky in a way. Now, you know, there were, there's not everything is an up story. I mean, uh, I didn't like the way things were going, and I quit and came back to Toronto. I was living in New York only for a short while, maybe several months. And, um, and uh, Albert was a little upset at me for leaving because he, he didn't have any rock and roll at the time. And that's what he saw in me as somebody that really knew what the rock scene was. So even though I'm well known as being a manager of singer-songwriters, during those early days, it was all rock and roll for me. I wasn't involved in singer-songwriters at all. So that, that's kind of like what laid the foundation for me was the poppers. And, uh, you know, we ended up, they ended up with the Monterey Pop Festival and... Uh, various other things. It didn't quite work, sadly. Uh, You know, although, you know, I don't want to diminish the achievement because uh, it it was an achievement. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's what a career is, You, you learn. So Skip went on to form Lighthouse and that really worked during its time. And uh, I went on and did a band called Kensington Market, and then I started True North. Kensington Market story was was a good one as well, but uh, started True North. And by the time I started True North and had released two or three records, I felt I felt I knew what I was doing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or at least had a pretty good grasp on the whole on the whole scene. And I'd had good luck in New York. Uh, and in the States and been touring in the States. And uh, that always meant something to me that, um, not because I felt I had to make it in the States, but I I felt that just staying in Canada seemed kind of narrow to me. You know, it it seemed, it didn't didn't seem like the right thing to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, with Kensington Market, I ended up working with uh, Bud Prager, who managed Foreigner and uh, Mountain, and uh, managed Felix Papillardi, the producer uh, who produced Cream's records, uh, or many of them anyway, the big one, Israeli Gears, and uh, produced the Kensington Market records. And again, didn't quite work. This would be 68, 69. Uh, the great band. I mean, the band was fabulous and they worked and, and they were really good, but just one thing or another, you know, just very tough. This is all before Canadian content. Right. I, actually, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Kensington Market because what I found interesting in the book is it looks, if I read it correctly, that you had a hand in actually putting the band together. That's accurate. Yeah. I had met, when I was managing the Poppers, I had met Keith McCoy, who was the lead singer and main songwriter for the band, uh, at least at the start. And uh, I'd always thought I want to do something with Keith. I didn't think I had the ability to work with two things, work two things at one time. 
Yeah, I didn't, I, I was never, listen, I was always very ambitious for my acts, but not so ambitious for myself, right to the end, you know, really. I mean, that may sound weird, but I, I was not into building empires or anything. You know, I was just into, just into being able to do a great job for the people I work with. But anyway, um, when, I, when I stopped working with Albert and left the Poppers Project and came back to Toronto, I looked up Keith and I said, Keith, we, uh, you know, what do you want to do? He said, I'd like to form a band. I said, okay, let's go find, let's, let's put it together. Now, I got lots of input from Keith, of course. Like Keith was from Sault Ste. Marie, so our bass player was a friend of his, Alex DeRue. Uh, but we, you know, I helped put it together, yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, because uh, they're, they're one of those bands, they and the Mandela, I think, are the two acts that whose music I don't really know at all, apart from you know, looking it up on YouTube every once in a while when it comes up again, just say, I, I have to remind myself of what they sound like because I know that they are the foundation for what comes after that. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, Steve, for you, mm-hmm. is that uh, Kensington Market signed to Warner Brothers in L.A. Oh, and yes. uh, the two albums were out on uh, the label, I remember. Was, I think they were, it was, w, it was Warner 7 is what it used to be oh, called, okay. I think, uh, the le- the label. And I don't know if it the seven or not, but it was Warner Brothers. And uh, Joe Smith, I met, uh, Joe was not a president. Joe was a promo man. And uh, I remember meeting him because when the market played at the Whiskey A Go-Go, when they toured in America, which they did a couple of times, um, all the Warner Brothers execs came out and Joe was amongst them. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great time. You know, it was really, really a great time. Do you know who opened for, (laughs) I'll tell you who opened for Kensington Market at the Whiskey A Go-Go. They were just getting started. Mind you, we were just getting started, but we had the record deal and the record was being hyped at, it wasn't gaining a lot of traction, frankly, but we were pretty hip and people were coming out to the shows as we toured around. And these were good venues like the Whiskey You Go On in San Francisco. We played the Fillmore, et cetera. Uh, but uh, Chicago Transit Authority. Wow. Actually, were the opening act at the Whiskey. Oh, I thought they were terrible. It just goes to show you what I knew. Um, were they t- in in retrospect? Were they terrible, or was it just at the time you thought? Well, they- you know, first off, let me say clearly, I liked several of their records, but they hadn't they hadn't made a record at that time. Okay, and uh, I just didn't think they were that good. But then, you know, one one of the ways uh, that you can get through this kind of jungle—that's the music business is, you know, you don't want to be arrogant, you don't want to be mean, and you don't want to be cruel, but you don't want to be intimidated by everybody. So half the time, I don't trust my judgment on anything that I wasn't working because I didn't want to be intimidated. I I didn't want to go, oh, this is so good, I can never do it, I've gone home. You know what I mean? I just just always wanted, for instance, here's a little known thing. I did not read a book on the music business, like a biography or a book about, I mean, not to say I didn't read, the only books I read were this business of music kind of books, you know, if I had to look up what a contract was about Mm -hmm. certain things. But I didn't read anything uh, until I retired, until I sold True North. And since then, I've read a lot. But I didn't want to be, I just didn't want to go, well, I, did, I, I don't know, just in the back. I, I, I'm saying this in hindsight because yeah. I don't know exactly why I didn't. But in hindsight, I can see that I was smart in a way. I didn't want to, I didn't want to idolize things. Okay. So the short answer is maybe Chicago Transit Authority were really good. But in my opinion, they weren't as good as the Kensington Market. Well, you know, uh, you, you know how it is. It's like if you think something isn't good, 
you're right nine times out of ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Good, good point, Steve. Uh, it's true. So, true. You started True North to is it to put out uh, Bruce Coburn's record? Yes, that's well. I also started it because I did feel it was time for me to have a label, and it, and it was true that the first record was Bruce's. The story there is the Poppers had a great, not, it probably wasn't a great record deal, but it was a really good record deal in New York with MGM's uh, sub-label Verve, Verve Forecast. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very hip label. They had Tim Buckley and uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band and Richie Havens and others. And it was a division of uh, MGM, who at that time were a big label in, in, in the days when there was 12 or 15 big labels, yeah. uh, maybe not 15, but maybe 10 or 12. And Warner and, and Kensington and Margaret were signed to Warner Brothers in LA. Now, I had trouble with both of those companies to some degree, creative troubles, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, the people running the label would say, please do this. And I would think it was wrong. And I would say, well, I, I don't know that that's the right thing for this band to do. But I ended up losing most of the arguments. I mean, none of them were, uh, none of them were the reasons that we didn't do well. I don't think I'm not blaming anybody. And people were always nice. I mean, the idea that, people at major labels were not nice is, is entirely wrong or was wrong anyway during those days. I don't know what it's like today. I assume it's the same. There's a lot of very dedicated music people, but you know, you're a lowly manager with a new band and uh, you know, the people are giving you money to make a record and they're, they got ideas and sometimes they're right. Sometimes their ideas were good. And a lot of the times they weren't. And um, so after I stopped working with Kensington Margaret, I moved to the country up in Killaloo, uh, which is just about 100 miles north of where I am right now as we talk. I'm in Prince Edward County, maybe a little further, maybe 150 miles north of here, near Algonquin Park, mm -hmm. just south of Algonquin Park. And um, I thought I was retired from the music business. I mean, I was only 20, what, I don't know, 27 or something. And, and, uh, and uh, one day I just got the idea. I said, well, the only way I think I'll be happy is to own my own label so that I can make my own mistakes. And uh, I thought of the name True North and uh said, okay, I'm going to go back to Toronto and move back to Toronto. And I'm going to start this label. And uh, that's when I signed Bruce. Thank you to Gene Martinick, who produced the record. And Gene introduced me to Bruce, really. Gene was a guitar player in Kensington Market. So, you know, you're, you're always involved with the people you were involved with. You know, they always stay. Something I like about the music business in a way is, you're always running into the people you, you've worked with before and often you're working with them again. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, so I signed Bruce and I made the record, paid for the record. Gene produced it. Uh, you know, I sat in the studio every minute, but we made it only over four days. His first record, self-titled, just called Bruce Coburn, has Going to the Country on it which is a song most people would remember from that album if they remember it at all. And um, I didn't have a deal though. I had a record, but I had no distribution. Mm -hmm. And you got to remember, these were the days there was no Harris Institute. There was no internet. There was no, no schools. There was no, you know, you, you were figuring it out as you went along, you know. So I went and saw all the record companies and got turned down by all of them. I, I mean, I, you know, I, uh, when I say all of them, I mean all the ones that could distribute a record probably. And, um, but interestingly enough, although I'd been turned down by CBS, 
who now are Sony for, for your listeners, but then were CBS. Uh, I actually got a, a return call from them after I'd been turned down. I, I'd been turned down by their president, I think it was, but I got a call from John Williams, who was the head of A&R in those days. He eventually had Gary Muth working with him, who he might be more familiar with. Yeah. And then I think Gary went over to Warner's at one point. But anyway, um, uh, John said, oh, I hear you are in here with this record. I'm aware of Bruce. And I talked it over with our president, and he okayed me to give you another call. Would you like to come up and uh, discuss this again? So I went up, and they, offer, and they offered me a distribution deal. It wasn't the greatest deal in the world. I didn't know that at the time, but I figured I'd find out how to make it work. They gave me only $15,000, and I had to give them six records. They didn't all have to be by Bruce, and I could give them to them, you know, sort of like over my own time period. So basically, I was getting like $2,500 a record, which is pretty horrifying. But they were willing to give me the whole $15,000 up front. Okay which meant I could finance my company because that was a lot of money. So I just said, well, I won't worry about how I'm going to make record two because I got, uh, no, I said, let me put it this way. I said, I know how I can make record two now because I've got $15,000. I don't know how I'm going to make record three or four, but, uh, you know, just have to roll the dice. Anyway, it all worked out. Um uh, so uh, I what, signed. What was, what was record two? Well, strangely enough, it was a record that actually had a hit single on it, a minor hit, mm-hmm. and it was a record that by a group nobody really will know. But when I tell them what the single is, they go, "Oh yeah, yeah, uh, Syrinx," which was a synthesizer band, a Moog synthesizer band. But they ended up doing the theme for a show called Here Comes the 70s. The song was Tillicum, and we released it as a single. And it went to number one in Alberta, like on Chad, and uh, which was, you know, this is when Top 40 was on AM radio still, although the yeah. beginnings of FM were, were around. And, uh, and uh, if you hear it, you'll, you'll recognize it. Uh, but really... Uh, the second, well, syrinx were important to me. John Mills Cockle had played synthesizer occasionally with Kensington Market, which is a whole other story about how adventurous that was for the market. But um, really, the second artist I signed who was uh, more up the normal alley was Murray McLaughlin. And uh, he made his first album and uh, for us as well. So I had Bruce... Syrinx and Murray McLaughlin by 71. I'd had a minor hit with Telecom, Here Comes the 70s. And uh, Murray's second album had Farmer's Song on it, which has become a kind of iconic record now. I mean, at this point, it's pretty famous. And it, and it became a hit single, a all formats. It we had, it, it wasn't even the A side of the single we released. Steve, as you remember, we used to actually release singles. They were forty fives yeah. with a little thing in the middle, so you could play it on your turntable. I loved it, and uh, so we got a hit single right away with Murray uh, in seventy two, I guess. That record was produced by, of all people, Ed Freeman, who had just produced American Pie with Don McLean. So, uh, you know, I was always, um, I was always connecting well, you know, for my acts and for myself. And uh, that was my, so those are the first, so Bruce had already released a second album before we put out Murray. So the first four albums that I put out were the Bruce Coburn self-titled, the Syrinx album that had Telecom on it, minor hit, minor hit. But if you look at like on, you know, the RPM charts or whatever, it was top 40. 
Um, And then Bruce's second album, which still didn't have a hit on it, but he was getting so much progressive underground FM airplay on on those records. And then we signed Murray and made his first album, Song from the Street. And then the next record would have been Murray's second album. And... uh, and uh, that had that had our first gold record on it, which was Farmer's Song. And we ended up with around 40 gold records. And uh, now I'm counting as my management company, which sometimes sure. managed acts that weren't on True North. Mm-hmm. But I ended up with my combined companies with around 40 gold and platinum records. Well, when I, yeah, you know, when I asked you at the beginning, you know, what you want to be when you grew up? I mean, obviously, <laughs> it, it has it has more to do with what you accomplished in your life than it has to do with what you wanted to be when you were 15. <laughs> and I think that, you know, one of the fact that you worked with Bruce and Murray back to back at the beginning of True North is really quite remarkable. It's almost like you started a role as though this was never going to end. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, for a while, that's the way it looked because shortly after that, although we didn't own the rec, we didn't own the, uh, we didn't, it wasn't on True North, but we signed Dan Hill and it didn't take long for us to have a number one record around the world. Yeah. With him was sometimes when we touch. And then, Right after that was Rough Trade, which was on Rough uh, on True North, mm-hmm. and you know High School Confidential and All Touch. Uh, these were really big records. So for a while, we were pretty hot, and then finally Coburn actually got a hit single. It didn't happen until his tenth album. Steve, we made ten albums before mm-hmm. he had a hit single. Now. He did have a gold album on his fourth album, which was called Night Vision. And he was getting a lot of FM airplay. But as far as hit singles go, it was Wondering Where the Lions Are, of course. And it was Mm -hmm. in 1979. And the album was Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws. And it was his 10th album. So, uh, you know, I, I think... I think that's artist development. <laughs> that is artist development. I mean, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see that in, in the twenty in the 2020s. Yeah. Well, you might if, uh, you know, we, we were quietly, people weren't noticing it, but we were quietly selling out concert halls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I was involved as a manager and as a co-publisher and as a record company. So, we were, you know, when you added up the whole package, there was always a little bit of success every, every, every time, a little more. It just wasn't apparent to the world because the world likes or did like, and you know what? The world still likes, actually. I don't think it's changed at all. Mm-hmm. Likes hits. And you know what? Bernie Finkelstein is not ashamed to say, I like hits. The people I admired when I got into the music business and started learning more about it, and I I looked at their careers, you know, from afar, were people like, well, like Ahmed Erdogan, to name one that most people know from Atlantic, but the Chess Brothers, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sam Phillips from Sun, because they not only made music that they are, are were involved in helping the making of music uh, yeah really counted and was culturally rich and uh, really I think in the end very important which is not why they made it in the first place because they made it in the first place because they wanted hits mm-hmm. and uh, you know and I, I felt the same way and I'm not ashamed to say it uh, you know I, I used to say, well, you know, we had 40 gold and platinum records, but I put out 500 records. So that's not even, it's not even one out of 10, you know? So, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I had weird taste, I guess. Only I would sign 
apparently, because everybody else had passed on them. And then I signed them. Uh, only I would sign a band like Rough Trade and actually think that High School Confidential could be a hit single on radio, you know, that somebody would actually play it. And they did. They did. You know, you know and and uh, same thing with Bruce Coburn. Who would think he could, you know, get any, you know, how would he get a hit, you know? Or Murray McLaughlin or, you know, Barney. And then we signed acts like Barney Bentall, who had four gold records and, uh, and uh, you know, various other things. And then in the more modern era, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, who are one of my very, very favorite acts to work with ever. I just can't tell you how much I used to love working with them. Uh, and I miss them. Uh, but we're friendly. We're all, we're all friendly. And uh, it was a really good run is what it was. And uh, yeah, but at the beginning, we had that period, uh, we had that period from, uh, I guess, Dan Hill's record, Sometimes When We Touch. And then just a year later, was Wondering Where the Lions Are, which was like, you know, a top 30 record pretty mm -hmm. much worldwide. Not, not in every country, not the way, not as big as Dan's record, but but a big hit. It was big, yeah. big hit. And, and then, uh, then Rough Trade uh, with All Touch was a kind of international, not, not huge, but top 50 on Billboard and uh, uh, in the US and uh, top 10 or top 20 in Australia and stuff. And then Bruce released Stealing Fire with Rocket Launcher and Lovers. So there was that period the sort of golden period, uh, sort of between 77 and 85. So that's eight years where we had several international hits, you know, and it was a great time where I was always on airplanes. I was always flying. I was always either in LA, I was in New York, I was in London. And I loved every minute of it. I mean, I loved it. I loved it entirely. And, uh, and again, you know, it had its downs for sure. There's lots of lots of no's, lots of things that didn't work, lots of problems. But um, but all in all, you know, I kind of, I guess maybe you can tell, I kind of liked being in the music business. How did I, you uh, how did how did you make the decision to walk away from the label? Yeah, well, I wanted, you know, I had read. I don't know if it's still true, really, but at the time. I'd seen this quote from Scott F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great author, saying that nobody in America, and I think we can translate that to North America if we want. But anyway, his real quote was, nobody in America gets a second act. Now, I thought to myself, I'd like to get a second act, meaning that, you know, that it, I was getting older, and I mean, there's several reasons, but I was getting older and I, uh, I had had a big heart operations five years before I sold, uh, although I, I recovered from it quite well. Actually, I got more healthy because of it, actually, but um, which is a strange thing to say, but it, it actually was good for me in the end. But uh, um, I... I was so busy running my company and it had gotten so big. I had 14 people working for me, you know, which I realize is not huge. I mean, I look at somebody like Shauna Decarche these days, I think that's 20 people or something, but uh, uh, you know, to me it was large. And, uh, and I said, if I tripped across an opportunity, I wouldn't even know what it was because I'm too busy because I'd be running to somewhere to do something that I had to get done. So I started thinking, well, maybe it's time for me to, to look at what else I might be able to do with my life, because pretty soon I won't be able to do anything else. And, uh, but then also the business was really, really changing. I could see that. And I said to myself, <laughs> you know, I didn't mind learning what the business was about the first time, but I didn't want to learn about it the second time. 
<laughs> you, know what, you know what I'm saying, Steve? I, I, I mean, I actually love streaming, mm-hmm. and I actually think it's probably a good thing in the long run, actually, unlike a lot of people that think it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but uh, but I, I'm not going to make equivalencies out of it, but, uh, but irrespective of, of what I thought. What I did think is that I'm going to have to learn about all of this and learn how to do it, and I don't think I want to. I don't think I want to. So, uh, of course, I have now. I'm not an expert by any means, but I have learned about it. So I, um, you know, um, amongst many people that, that spoke to me, Jeff Kulovic was very convincing, and uh, he came up with the right offer, I felt. And he had Harvey Glad as a partner, which gave me a lot of assurance uh, at the time because uh, Harvey was one of my oldest, oldest friends. Mm-hmm. And I knew he had, had the money, uh, so it wouldn't have been an exercise in futility. Not, not that I thought Jeff would be, but I didn't know Jeff all that well. Right. Really. He's a young guy. So yeah. 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 And you know, it's just, you know, so, so all I'm saying is he came with the right package, including the right package of people. And uh, so I sold and um, uh, I'll tell you, you know, I didn't regret it at all. Although in the last year or so I've had so much energy for what I'm doing that I sometimes say, Oh, I guess I could have kept the company maybe, uh, you know, but I don't know that I got a second act, Steve, but I, but I did write my book, mm-hmm. which I really wanted to do. I really wanted to have something that would be my story of what I saw and the times I went through uh, that would be, you know, somewhere on the library shelves or digital, digitally available because I used to read what people said, and I, not about me particularly, but about anything, and I would see so many untruths or so many non-factual comments that I felt, well, at least my end of the story will be available. Even if nobody reads it, it'll be there. And I made part of my deal that it had an index, so it would be a book that people could, could use if they were looking up subjects, you know, and, and, um, you know, I mean, like things, just so you know what I'm talking about, like I'd hear things like when a great act like Leslie Feist, you know, got her big hit single and I'd hear somebody on the radio say, well, that's the first female Canadian to ever, ever have a top 20, whatever single in America. And I'd say, Jesus, they can't even remember Sarah McLaughlin. And that was just two years ago. How are they ever going to remember Murray McLaughlin or Rough Trade? So, uh, so I wrote that's you know. So I got to write that book. Mm-hmm. And now I'm producing this movie, which if you ask me anything about it, I'll be glad to talk about. I'm it. good. At, well, this is the thing I want to before we're we're finished here. Yeah. I think like you know you've had such a career, but this is, I mean, if if you want to rank it as your second act. Producing, let's talk about this documentary that you're yeah. involved in. Well, first off, you know, a lot of people talk about producing films, but we're actually in, we're actually in um, pre-production now. Mm-hmm. We've signed a contract with CBC Documentary Channel, and we've got all the financing. And believe me, putting together the money to do a, a feature-length documentary is a lot more difficult than putting together the money to do an album because, you know, we're talking about a very large budget here or relatively large compared to what we'd spend on records. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the movie is called Atomic Reaction and it's about Canada's role in the Manhattan Project. And for those that don't know, the Manhattan Project is the pro- is what they called the uh, research and the development of the atomic bombs. And um, Canada has a deep involvement in that. Um, And more particularly, uh, the uranium that is used in atomic bombs and all came, well, may not have all came from, but the majority of it came from Great Bear Lake 
in the Northwest Territories and was processed in Port Hope and then sent to America and ended up finally in Los Alamos Mm -hmm. and was part of those atomic bombs. And now this is for better or for worse, you know, it's not trying to make a value judgment here, although obviously I think dropping atomic bombs is not the right thing to do. But, you know, I wasn't alive during the, well, I was, I was born in 1944, so I was alive, but I don't think as a one-year-old, I can say that I observed the situation very clearly. Uh, So, uh, uh, um, but, um, so we're going to tell the history of Canada's involvement, and it goes well past just the uranium. Um, Canada, Canada hosted the British uh, atomic research in Montreal at McGill University, and there's actually a building named after uh, Rutherford, the, known as the father of the atom. And it's a very, very interesting story. And and and, and basically, it's Canada's involvement and the um, the results of that involvement right up to modern days. And what I mean by that is. Uh, you can't carry around uranium without um, without radiation. And uh, people uh, in Port Hope uh, will know what I'm talking about, those that want to admit to it at all. Uh, there, there's a $3 billion cleanup that's going on in Port Hope right now. And there's been a big cleanup up at Great Bear Lake as well which is Dene territory. Okay. And uh, there's a great Dene story. They're, a, uh, they're an indigenous people that live mostly in the north of, of Alberta, or north of Alberta in the Northwest Territories. And uh, so we are starting to shoot the first week of June and uh, touch wood, uh, We'll be in the editing room uh, by the end of that year, the end of this year, and uh, hopefully looking at release sometime at the, towards the end of 2023 uh, of the film, and it'll be shown on CBC. We haven't really publicized it, so you're getting you're getting a scoop here, Steve. Uh, and. Uh, but we're we're going to uh, we're going to uh, start talking more about it. I think so. Okay. So I'm very excited. I have a partner here in Prince Edward County named David Hatch, who has way more experience making films than I do. Mm-hmm. He did that series that you may have seen called Cities in Blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah with Danny Marks. Yeah, yeah, um, it's quite good and. Uh, and several other things, and he. Uh, so anyway, he's he's a very accomplished filmmaker, and uh, and uh, we've been working on it for three years. It took a long, long time to put this together, mm-hmm. and it, and we're still a year away from having anything. So, well, it's, it's, good, to, it's good that you have uh, such a, a noble and large project to be working on. Well, it's thank you for that. Um, you know, we got to make it good, so it's stressful. Because uh, you know, there's there's an expectation that it'd be good. It's a very important story, and it's interesting, Steve. It's it's there's a lot of parallels to the early days in the music business, in that um, a lot of people don't know that this story. They don't they don't even know that uranium was processed in Port Hope and ended up in those bombs, and it's kind of like you know Canadians don't know often a lot about their own acts as well. So it's, yeah. you know, it's just one of those things. So here I am awesome. <laughs> doing this. In an hour long interview, we could only scratch the surface on some of Bernie's experiences. So I highly recommend that you go and read his book, True North. It's incredibly entertaining and well-written and it really fleshes out the stories we just barely touched on today. He's been a manager, a producer, a record company owner, and now a documentary film producer. It's been quite an incredible life. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. 
If you enjoyed this one, I hope that you'll check out previous episodes and click the subscribe button to get future episodes as they are released. You can also follow The Creationist Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.